Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the 22 Grand Pod podcast. In this episode, we're talking to long-standing NME journalist Mark Beaumont. Mark started life as a music journalist back in the mid-90s and has gone to work for many major publications in the music world. Mark was able to join Tom and I during lockdown from his in-laws in Suffolk and when we joined him, he was having a slight problem with his daughter's toy wand. Sorry, that's... <laughs> <laughs> My daughter's magic wand fall on the floor. Can you put that? Right, we use that as a jingle. <laughs> I want to you might have to kick it out. <laughs> it sounds like uh, a bit mad to where you are as well. It's not too mad, really. We um, we locked down in deepest Sussex, Suffolk, rather. Oh uh, right, so you um, got you got a bit of room. Yeah, a bit of room. Um, we're at my mother-in-law's house, so there's a garden because I've got a two-year-old, so she needs somewhere to sort of run around, basically. You're quite faint, Tom. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm. I'm good actually. Um, Lux, Lux is eight now, so she's oh, wow. she's a little she's a little bit easier to deal with in this situation. I think she understands a bit more. <laughs> but I am. I'm doing all right. Uh, just been painting today, <laughs> trying to find anything to do. To be honest, just to kick us off, um, can you just give us an idea about your background as a music journalist? Um, okay, so I, I started writing for the enemy in '95, so I was kind of slap bang in the middle of, or just post peak Britpop, really, because I was a child of Britpop, you know. And then, so yeah, so when I started writing, it was Britpop was kind of peaking, and um, we were getting sort of the second wave, which was um, still good fun, but not quite the cultural. Uh, you know, not quite the cultural excitement, the, the, the volcano of, of creativity that was happening a, pre, a couple of years earlier. Um, so, yeah, so I, I uh, got in with all those sort of second wave Britpop bands and had fun doing that. Um, and then, so I did uh, like 18 months on the Melody Maker towards the end of the 90s. And then I, I became staff writer at NME in 2000, I think. Um and I've been there back well, I've been back there ever since. Um, but since around 2008, um, I've not been on staff. I've been freelancing for Enemy and Guardian and The Telegraph and um, The Independent. I'm doing quite a lot for now. <clears throat> Various bits for Uncut, Classic Rock, things like that. So I kind of spread myself around quite a lot for the last 10 years. Um, I've written various books on um, various bands, uh, started with Muse. Um, and some various ones on the Killers and Jay Z and Kanye and stuff like that. So okay. I've got myself, myself around a bit. Yeah, it's quite a varied mix, to be fair. <laughs> um, so I guess you're on you're in a good position then when there's a bit of a transition from, like I said, a second wave of Britpop into like this naughty's period. Like, what do you remember of that time? Do you remember a significant change around that time? Um, I kind of found it um, a little bit disappointing for me as a writer because there were all those Britpop bands I really enjoyed um and they'd got the you'd either had the that sort of they'd reached their peak and, and faded away a little bit the ones I really liked or they were too bit they were so big that me as a new writer I wasn't getting a chance to interview them a lot of people like Pulp and Suede and Blur I mean I managed to um, get to get to Australia with Blur for a week which was fantastic 
Um, but I didn't get the chance to sort of get to know those bands as they were coming up. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed a lot of the bands I did get to meet as they were coming up in the late 90s. Um, but by then, you know, I was, you know, a child of Britpop and I really liked all the sort of melodic sort of fun stuff. But as I was sort of getting established, um, what, what tended to be happening was that the enemy was kind of pushing sort of less interesting scenes for me. You know, people like stool rock, you know, people were sitting down on stools and putting all the hats on them. And, and uh, you know, all this sort of fairly, you know, great music that wasn't really danceable, stuff like the Verve and, and later, late 90s Radiohead stuff. So all the sort of clubs were getting a bit boring and, and you couldn't really go and dance there anymore. And um, and the scenes weren't really sort of hitting with me. Um, so when we get to the Strokes arriving, I, mean, I, think I, I don't think I was alone that, in in thinking that you know it was a whole new world really i mean they really did hit quite hard in the enemy office we were we were really excited by them um and it really did feel like something brand new was was happening even with that one band and we did that issue with the enemy which was uh, uh sort of looking into the various other new york um acts that were, were uh, revolving around them people like yeah yeah yeah's and andrew wk and and people like that and and that was that was a really great move i can't remember who who came up with that idea it might have been um uh, Alex Needham's idea, but um, you know, a really great idea to do a whole issue around those New York bands because that really did sort of cement something that you know it was very clear that the British scene was you know stagnant really and had been for a few years. Um, Britpop had kind of run out of steam, and so to sort of look to America, which we'd kind of ignored for quite a long time since grunge really, and um, and see that actually things are really quite vibrant there. That really it, it, that was very exciting. And as we saw in the next couple of years, you know, all, it really sort of hit home in terms of bands across the UK just springing up in various styles and all over the place and, and, uh, and starting something of their own. I mean, it really did spark the whole thing off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think at the time, the Strokes were, were known as the series of, of rock and roll by enemy. Was that something that you all kind of believed in? Um, I don't know. If I, I did, you know, if you throw the phrase saviour of rock and roll around, <laughs> yeah. around an awful lot. But so many people because we need we wanted a savior to come along but it did seem like you know the industry had kind of bought up all the all the alternative um sorry the independent labels had kind of been bought up by the majors and it seemed like you know in alternative music as it was had been kind of commodified to a degree and, and we were getting these these sort of you know null rock bands as we would call them that just sounded like oasis being churned out because oasis were making so much money for everybody yeah um, so you had all these sort of very formulaic bands coming through, and we thought it was kind of uh, a little bit over to a degree. And guitar music could kind of run run its course. So when you get something that sounded very independent and it was recording, it sounded like it was recording some basement somewhere on on a ten quid microphone, um, but sounded just really exciting and really thrilling. I mean, like a real sort of new wave sort of vibe to it. <clears throat> I mean, it was very very exciting in the office. I mean, everyone was um, inspired, I think, and inspired also to go out and try and find stuff that matched it from the UK. Yeah. And that links in quite well to, obviously, because we've got you here, I've got to ask you what you, um, well, how you know Tom, basically, and what you made of the Paddingtons back in the day. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, you know, I had a great time with the Paddingtons. We were, okay, I think that's the only time I ever went to Hull, um, was to um, go and see the Paddingtons. I think, did we do an interview, Tom? I can't remember. Did we? I think we did. Do you know what? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I think we did. Um, was it, was it uh, a Delphi show or something like that? I can't remember where it was. The only thing I remember about Hull is that I kind of got out of the place thinking that um, 
I think it's sort of designed overnight to revolve so that you can't, can't find the road back to the station again once you're in. And <laughs> <laughs> kind of just shifts around on its axis a little bit so that where you thought the station was, it's not. So Yeah, maybe, maybe people used to think that they didn't want to leave there sometimes when they went, but maybe they just couldn't leave. Yeah, <laughs> no way out. Even out as some sort of vortex. But um, what I thought... Um, was interesting about that. What, what was kind of enlightening about going to Hull and seeing you guys was that that scene that happened in that in the noughties, it, it wasn't just like Britpop where it was, or punk or something like that, where it was, okay, you've got stuff in London, happening in London, you've got stuff happening in Manchester, and there's maybe sort of bits and bobs dotted around elsewhere. This was like a nationwide kind of, uh, you know, explosion, if you like. I mean, everyone was obviously sort of saw the Strokes or saw the Libertines or whatever they were getting their inspiration from. And at the same mm. time kind of came up with this exciting music from across the, across the, across the country. You know, you had your Kasabian doing your rave rock in the Midlands and you had you guys doing your thing up in Hull and you had, you know, Kaiser Chiefs doing their sort of pop revivalism in Leeds and, you know, uh, Libertines in London. It's, it was everywhere. And it, all just, it was all different. And Gla the stuff that was going on in Glasgow, this kind of art rock thing. <clears throat> so yeah. just out of nowhere, all of this stuff suddenly descended. And it was, I mean, it was, it wasn't, so it wasn't just exciting when the strokes came along. It was, it was just, a constant sort of source of excitement. Every week there was like, oh, look, bro, who's this block? Yeah. You know, they sound amazing. They're from London. Oh, look, so over here there's, you know, you know, you know the future heads from, from Newcastle. Or I don't know if it was Newcastle. It was from, from the northeast. So, it was, yeah, it was, really, it was a really exciting time. And what frustrates me about it really is that um, what the enemy didn't do, I think we were kind of so swept up in it and, you know, we couldn't really make head nor tail of what was going on because none of it sounded the same necessarily. It was all just exciting guitar music. And we never really came up with a name for it. And that was kind of frustrating. You know, you had, you know, if you look back at the late 70s and say punk and new wave and Britpop or whatever, and these scene names which the enemy has always been so good at coming up with, we really fell down on that, um, that particular period because there wasn't really any one defining element of, of all of it. And that means that over, basically it got defined in the end by the people that didn't like it. So the people that liked it didn't get the chance to give it a name or, didn't, or couldn't give it a name. But the people that didn't like it called it landfill indie, and that's what stuck. And so, we, we you know, it's, it's the first sort of really exciting scene that's happened in UK music where we're supposed to be embarrassed about it because it's been defined by the people that didn't like it. And, I, you know, yeah. that's frustrating when you look back at it. Cause I'm, yeah, that's kind of annoying, isn't it? Well, what, would, what would you call it now if you could, if you could name it? Oh, God. Yeah, I, I, still, I still don't know if it's possible. <laughs> I mean, we tried things like... Um, Grotten roll, but that was the thing. They weren't really very good, really sort of very you know positive names, and they're not stuff that you would want to pick out and go right. I'm a I'm a grotten roller, you know. So yeah, yeah, right. Um, I think if you look back now, wouldn't I, I think we should have called that whole sort of um, uh, London scene where the, with the Libertines and and um, Razorlight and all that sort of stuff. I think we should call that um, Boz Rock um, after Boz from uh, the guy that did all of the uh, the sketches from the Dickens books. Um, which I think might have been a bit too literary, but kind of in, in the right sort of vein. Um, I don't know if maybe that would have stuck Boz Rock. But ultimately, we kind of came up with a New York Revolution, which I think was just oh, yeah. a meh. Is that <laughs> when the, the Arctic Monkeys came around? Yeah. Uh, well, that was kind of... Uh, we did New York Re Revolution kind of when the Australian scene kicked off, and oh, right. people like that, um, which again made it difficult to pinpoint the UK scene within it because it was talking about like guitars across the world rather than just uh, just in the UK. So yeah, was, I mean, we were kind of stymied by the fact that it was just so many different sorts of music all at once and 
how do you define that? How do you try and sort of condense that into one thing that people can relate to? Uh, it's interesting you talked about that term landfill in there just because I read one of your recent articles and it said that you've been talking to other enemy journalists and you felt like a mutual responsibility for that term. Yeah. Is that right? You should. Um, I mean, it was in, yeah. But the thing is that we've kind of, if people have kind of taken it on and, and even the people involved with it have kind of accepted that that is something that should be, we should be embarrassed about or the UK should be embarrassed about and people should have these indie amnesties and, you know, oh God, you know, I'm, I'm so ashamed I like <laughs> yeah. a fake song or whatever, you know. Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. It was really good fun at the time. It was just, it was like every week there was some new, uh, really great song coming out. Um, it strikes me that what, what I remember most about that period, I think, is it, it was a period when I started DJing quite a lot and I was kind of formative in starting club enemy we did a um we got off of well, basically i got offered a, a to dj and, and run a room a second room in a club called kill or hippies in london and, and i basically decided that I'd, I'd try and ask everyone in the office to learn to dj you know every every week or every month we do it there'd be a, you know a new clutch of brilliant songs and everyone knew them and you know there was a real sort of uh, you know a cultural explosion happening um and so as, when i look back at it that's what i kind of remember most is just seeing really packed sweaty rooms full of uh, for the kids just having the times of their lives and that wasn't just in the UK either we we, we go off to uh, I mean we the club in me became sort of the biggest um, club uh, franchise in the UK for a while I mean it was in every single city pretty much um, but we go to yeah I remember and, that. And, and, and we have you know if you find it all across Europe it seemed to be really sort of infecting everywhere it was a really exciting time and people really enjoyed it and shouldn't be ashamed yeah <laughs> I think even our band played Club Enemy, so <laughs> and we never played outside a hole. <laughs> so there must have been a whole Club Enemy. Yeah, there was. Yeah, got some good bands on actually. Yeah, yeah. I think what we found with this <clears> because a while everybody, every town had a Club Enemy, and then people realised that actually they just had a really good club night. And they didn't need to call it Club Enemy and pay a little bit of money for the use of the name. Yeah. So they changed the name of the club and kept on kept on with their great nights. With all that in mind, Mark, and given the fact you've covered music now for over 20 years. Do you think that was a unique time for guitar bands? I think it was unique largely because of what I said about how varied it was. Um, when you've got sort of other scenes and other eras, um, you know, you look at Britpop and ultimately you've got kind of, you know, a jaunty sort of melodic side to it, or you've got the surly Oasis sort of side to it. Um, there wasn't a huge amount of variety. Britpop had its own particular sound and the, and when you're looking at guitar music from that period, you know, a lot, that's what a lot of it sound like. You look at the punk guitar period in the late seventies, you've got sort of punk and new wave, but it's still sort of jagged and, and you know, the, there's a unity to it. This was unique, I think, because it was, it was just everything. It was all sorts of different stuff and, and you never really knew what was coming at you. And it didn't seem like there was much um, interaction in terms of uh, the, the influence between bands or between areas either. Um, I think everyone was kind of, the roots were in the strokes and, and maybe to a certain degree, the libertines, but ultimately everyone kind of did their own thing. Um, and I think so it's a unique time really because people were just inspired by the time rather than any particular sound of it. And I think you know, everyone could see and feel there was something happening and everyone wanted to get involved. And, and so that was kind of unique. I mean, it was a real sort of wave of, of inspiration and, and excitement across the country. And a lot of, a lot of us got, got quite swept up in it. I had a great time. Yeah, I, I agree, actually. And, like, 
um, everyone was just, yeah, you're right. Like everyone was just kind of a bit different and that's probably what was really good about it. Because I remember, you know, no one ever really sounded alike each other. And like, I remember being like people saying that we sounded like the Libertines or this and that. And I always used to think like, we never really sounded like the Libertines really. We kind of, if, if anything, like people used to dress the same, that was probably the only thing that was, um, the same about any of the bands but like musically i think they were they were like very different yeah there was a certain sort of um scruff bag look that was uh, fairly universal across most of the bands wasn't there but um if, individually in the various areas there was a, a likeness in terms of sound i mean a lot of the Leeds band had various threads in common um you know the london bands you know there was also there was a whole sort of world of people around around the Libertines and people that followed on from that. Mark, how about your favourite or most underrated bands from that era? And then me and Tom were reading one of your articles today about your top 20 Stroke songs. Uh, I'm guessing they must rank quite highly. Yeah, I mean, obviously the Strokes um, are key. I mean, a lot of those big bands I thought were great. I mean, there's very few bands in there that I didn't really like. Um, I was particularly taken by the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, thought they were fantastic and one of the best live bands I've ever seen, actually. Absolutely riveting to watch. Um, at the very early days, um, when the Strokes came out, we were kind of scout. Everyone was kind of scouting around, I think, for a UK equivalent or someone that would, would was exciting that, that would have the same sort of spirit. And um, there were various members of the enemy team that really were back in the Libertines, and I thought, you know, Libertines are great. I was currently I, at that time. I was back, backing eighties Matchbox Beeline disaster because I kind of their manager yeah. sort of played me some of their stuff very early on and, and I'd gone to see them and just thought been blown away by this. Yeah, they were great. So there was going on in there. Um, so I was kind of pushing them, even though obviously they were far less of a commercial prospect than, than the Libertines. And for a while there was a bit of a sort of a standoff, just like oh, the Aces Matchbox, all the Libertines going to be the ones that really, really break through here. And ultimately it was the Libs. But the Aces Matchbox were a huge, I was a huge fan of them. Um, uh, people like um, Foles and Maccabees later on and Block Party, Kasabian, Kaiser. I mean, all those big bands. And then a couple of, um, I mean, I, you know, I was, I was fairly, um, uh, you know, uh, I was a big backer of um, bands that became big um, that people might not necessarily think of are quite so cool, but I'm still sort of uh, quite proud of them. Um, and um, there's, there's, all, there's all those sort of bands all these big bands that were out there and doing well and everyone knows about. Um, and then there were some of the bands that didn't quite break through that should have done. And, and a band like the Holloways, I thought was fantastic. Um, still think that band are brilliant. And, you know, had, just had that one sort of minor hit and then sort of it, uh, in the background, the various sort of label nightmare went on that meant that their second album got delayed and they never really got the chance to, to, um, to follow up on it. And that, that, that's a really a huge missed opportunity I think because I thought that the second album was fantastic when it finally emerged, and and those guys are just great, and um, you know I'm still very good friends with them to this day. Um, so there's, there's you know sometimes there's those sort of bands, those frustrated ones that um, that didn't that sh- didn't get the um, respect and the attention they deserved. I think most of the other ones, I mean, we we, we were in a good situation that the bands that we liked, if we promoted them well enough in the NME, then generally they'd do quite well and they'd sort of get chart hits and. So many of them did. Um, so as much as, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not so much the bands that made it and had big hits that that um, I look back on. It's, it's more the ones that deserved that but didn't get it. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of 22 Grand Pod. If Naughty's guitar music is your thing, then you might enjoy our Patreon page, where for £3 a month you will get access to the following series. The Naughty's Deep Dive, where we go through the likes of the Stalking Pete Doherty documentary in painful detail. My favourite 2000s album, where patrons and other guests come on to talk about their favourite album of the era. Legend or Landfill, in which we go through Enemy's top 10 albums of each year from 2001 and see if we think they are indeed legendary or for the landfill. Unsigned Stories, where we chat to bands that didn't quite make it in terms of signing that elusive record deal. We also have Fan Stories, where I talk to people about their memories and opinions on all things Naughty's Indie. You also get early access to any main podcast episodes and it's also worth checking out the YouTube page where you can see extended video versions of the interviews as well as plenty of other bits of commentary and opinion. All links are in the description. Now back to the pod. I mean, how did you decide which bands to back? Was it purely based on the music and how excited people were in the office about it? Well, the thing was, it was it was all happening so quickly. And like I say, and there would be a new band every week. I'm not sure that there were that there was a necessarily a an editorial overview about a lot of it. Um, you know, apart from who was going to go on the cover, but I certainly wasn't in those meetings. The closest I had to pushing those sort of things was um, I was editing the singles page, so I'd find that... Um, <clears throat> and that was a very difficult thing to do at that time because I could only do something like 12 or 15 singles a week um, in the space that I had. That was all. It was all in sort of blocks, and so there's only so many songs you can get in there, and there were always far more than that that were worthy mm. of getting in those single places. And so it, it was frustrating that you couldn't really get, get everything in there, but... It did mean that, you know, a little coterie of sort of two or three of us would sit together and decide what was going to get single of the week, that any one particular week. And that, that did have a certain power to it because it would certainly get attention and, and often it would, it would chart. Um, yeah. So that was quite an interesting thing. But I mean, it, it, that, and then that would kind of maybe feed into decisions that would be made, being made elsewhere in the paper. But, you know, it wasn't up to me to, unfortunately, to decide what, who was going to get pushed and who wasn't. I mean, Tom, did you feel the effects of that as a band when you got talked about an enemy did you feel the benefit from that kind of thing i remember i remember our first album or even like singles and stuff we got pretty good reviews and i think it really helped us in a way because like there was some of our like some of our other touring mates like um Ten Thousand things for instance they used to come and tour with us quite a bit and i remember when they brought their album out it kind of kind of ruined them because they got a one out of ten or something like that and Personally, I didn't think they deserved it. It was like, I used to love their album. Maybe maybe I was a bit biased because they were on tour with us or whatever, but I genuinely thought that they, they were great. Like, definitely definitely seeing them live as well. But, like, they brought their album out. And, and I mean, I don't know if it was you, Mark. <laughs> I think but, it might have um, been that one. Yeah, I thought... What was it? Yeah, it might have been. I remember, I remember it clear as day, like, reading it in the van and... Uh, it was when we, we were on tour as well, and I'd picked the enemy up. Um, and yeah, it was just, I read the review and I was a bit shocked, but it kind of, I think it just deflated them, obviously. And obviously, like, fans of the enemy listened to it as well, because at the time it was like, it was still a big magazine, wasn't it? And these indie kids used to take it on board, I guess. Yeah. So I reckon it, yeah, it, it definitely it definitely made a big difference anyway, yeah. I can't remember much about the album, but I do remember thinking it was awful. <laughs> Fair enough. I've got to ask you some juicy questions, Mark, if you don't mind, such as 
the best and worst bands to interview from that time? Um, see, this is tricky for the best and worst bands to interview that time. I mean, you tend to find that the best and worst bands to interview generally are the ones, the best ones are, are the ones that you get the most, you can get the most, the best copy out of, and the worst are the ones that you get nothing out of. Right, uh, okay. So I guess that in terms of what, who I interviewed at that time, I mean, some of the best ones would be like, I don't know if I interviewed the others, but you'd, you'd read about, you'd read stuff by the others and, the, you know, what, what great, great quotes you'd get, what great interviews you'd get. Um, you also sort of usually get some pretty damn good stuff out of the Liberties. Um, in terms of the best interview I did during that time, it's not necessarily a band from the, um, that, you know, maybe particularly relevant to um, 22 Grand Pod, but um, the best interview I did at the time was Morrissey. Um, okay. Because... You know, whatever you think about the guy, I mean, whatever, everything, every word that comes out of his mouth is gold. Yeah. Um, you know, endlessly quotable man. Yeah, um, yeah. And that was a, I mean, just a, a gift for for someone like me. Um, and then the worst would be the people that just barely say anything. Um, I would say people like Jay Maskis from Dinosaur Junior, who. Oh uh, uh, yeah, I think Jay Maskis has got to be like one of my favourite guitarists. Love Dinosaur Junior, they're very good. Yeah. I mean, you know, great music, but, you know, try, try interviewing the guy. I mean, yeah, half an hour. I can imagine, actually. In half an hour, you might get 15 questions in because he just pauses for two minutes after every question and just says yes. <laughs> 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 that's, uh, that's a Jay Maskis interview. <clears throat> but in terms of the bands that you, you would cover more often, I mean, I guess um, the, the guy from uh, Crystal Castles fell asleep on the phone with me once. That was a pretty bad <laughs> That was a pretty bad interview. Um, yeah, and the best ones, I mean, a lot of them were very good. I mean, Johnny Burrell, I mean, what a great, great guy to interview, you know? Great, just great, quite yeah. endlessly quotable people. I love those guys. But what about, did you ever into, interview the Strokes? Yeah, I went to New York for them, um, and they were okay. I mean, um, yeah, they, I mean, they, they were fine. I mean, they were, they were generally quite nice, a little bit sort of, sort of glum. Um, but um, I've interviewed um, uh, uh, Albert quite a lot since then, and he's he's always been a joy. He's always been really good fun and, and cheery and chatty, and yeah, great guy to great guy to talk to for a bit. Uh, yeah, strokes, good fun. I had a, I had a good time. Um, when I was in New York with them, I think their manager um, invited me to go and play poker with them and Kings of Leon in his uh, in his apartment. I've, I've, I've heard about those poker nights, actually. <laughs> yeah, I kind of rinsed them, to be honest with you. I felt bad just winning all the money <laughs> off them. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure they're not. Yeah, they're apart not. from the manager. The manager knew what he was doing, but the rest of them had no idea. And I guess more of a general question mark. We asked bands about the internet and the impact it's had on, on their music. Um, what's the impact it's had on music journalism? Like, How has it changed over the years? Um, well, I mean, it's been fairly fundamental, really. Um, obviously... You know, we find we're seeing lots of publications closing down or just going straight online now, as if the enemy has, um, and uh, and many others sort of struggling to keep advertising coming in and and maintain their their income. So it's, it's it has made a, a huge impact in terms of the industry and 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 in terms of the stuff you write, it's it means that there's kind of less meaty features to do. It used to be in the enemy that you'd do. There'd be maybe five or six right, big features every week, um, so there was quite a lot of that to go around, and I'd be doing an awful lot of that. These days, there's there's a lot less of that. Um, 
you find that you're writing kind of more newsy reaction type pieces and comment pieces and um and you generally have less access because people see the uh the internet as being less important than print even though you know the, the potential of people reading it is actually far greater and the enemy is is far far bigger on, online than it ever was in print i mean by a huge degree um okay what in terms of numbers kind of thing yeah yeah i mean more people read the enemy today in what were in one day today than would have read it in in a in about two months when it was in print right okay. um, it's, it's phenomenal i mean it's just it's ridiculous how successful it is <laughs> but uh yeah in terms of writing writing stuff online it it, it means that um you know there's there's less like i say there's less access you'd spend less time with bands you tend to be on the phone quite a lot more than you would be sitting face to face um and uh i mean you also find that what's been difficult for me as a critic as you say you know i've not shied away from giving bad gig, bad gigs and albums bad reviews um and that's kind of getting more difficult now i think for people i mean i'm kind of lucky that i'm established and, and someone that's known a little bit for doing that sort of thing that i can get away with it maybe a bit more but I think if you're a new kid coming through and writing, it's a very difficult time to come in being critical, you know? I mean, the internet is very down on people being critical of anything. And, you know, fair enough when they're talking, when people are talking about, you know, bullying or, you know, being nasty to people on Twitter or whatever. But when you're criticising someone's album or someone's gig, you know, I think people, people are kind of starting to come down on that a bit and, and artists sort of going, you know, that's unfair, you know, we've got feelings too, all this sort of stuff. Fair enough, but uh, well, yeah. what you find now is that if you give a bad review, I mean, what you find if you give a bad review, the, the, the comeback from it can be quite harsh and severe. And if you're not used to that, is you know, it, it can be very off putting and it can be off putting for publications as well. So, what that means is that you kind of end up people playing it safe and you get four stars across the board, everything gets four stars now. Mm. Um, yeah, that's kind of it's kind of boring, that, isn't it? I, I suppose does does this mean that they can kind of attack? This gives them access to like retaliate, I guess, as well. Well, I mean, yeah, but you don't really get. I mean, what happens is, I guess, that if you give something four stars, then everyone's happy, and you don't really get much of a response from that. If you give something three stars, people actually get quite shirty about that. And people like yeah. PRs and bands will sort of go, "What three stars? What are you talking about?" And some fans will some of the worst sort of comebacks i've had have been from three star reviews bizarrely if you give if you give something two stars then i mean it's like uproar <laughs> you know i mean two star <laughs> reviews is, is unbelievable <clears throat> like you'll get the, the industry will come out against you you know like musicians every, you know, you'll, you'll you'll be part of, you'll be in the center of some sort of storm somewhere or other and yeah. if you give like one star then like even your your colleagues will come out against you. You know, you, you'll just every. You, it's the worst possible thing you could possibly do. It's, it's and it, I, I think that's kind of off putting for a lot of. I mean, it kind of apart from the fact that it makes criticism fairly dull and re, and and yeah, it's good. encourages encourages everything to be just sort of homogenized, sort of mulch, and not really telling people what's good and or not. Um, mm. I think the idea of sort of crushing criticism, which seems to be happening online quite a lot as a result of this everything moving online. Um, I, you know, I just think it's, you know, it, it, it you know, it, it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see it in films. I mean, films and TV, people can can slag off whatever they like and, and give people give films dreadful reviews if it's bad. But you know, in music, we seem to let bad bad music get away with it a lot more because it's kind of seen as unpolite or something. You think it's a societal thing then, or not really? Because I mean, I guess there's a comparison with football now. We're here, 
managers and players saying you, know, you can't criticise your teammates anymore because you know they're not prepared for it. It's not going to work anymore. Do you think? Is it it's a, I mean, I think there's, a, there's a there's a good thing. I think there's a good thing. Good movements being made in terms of you know protecting people's mental health online and yeah. things like this, and, and trying to stop people from being abused. And that's fair enough. But when you when people start to extend that into here's a dreadful record and uh, you know you're not allowed to say it's dreadful because some some nice people have made it. Yeah, and people then people go and listen to a dreadful record and go, well, why did you make me listen to that dreadful record? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, last time I gave a one, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about sort of an, in the no, early noughties when I gave something a, a bad review. The last time I did something like that, I gave uh, a Tom O'Dell album, not not out of ten or something in the enemy, and it was national news. I mean, it was national news. There's a story about it in, in the action. I mean, people love it. What's that about? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just a bad <laughs> a bad record. Um, so yeah, but the other thing I was going to bring up about that is that um, we also find that since everything's online and, and being online means that everything has the same reach, no matter sort of what, what its uh, what its basis is, you find that there's there's so many outlets that are all sort of plugging different acts that there's no consensus. No, there isn't anywhere like there used to be with the enemy. Uh, you know, you, you see what's on the cover of the enemy and go right. Okay, that's the band that's being pushed this week. I'll go and listen to them. There's there's a consensus being forced upon you in some way or other, but there is at least something that you can focus on. Now there there isn't any of that. There isn't one place you can go and go right. Oh, that's the band I need to listen to this week, and oh, that's quite exciting. Mm. When when publications do, or when online outlets do that, you know they've got a big thing at the top of their page, but it seems it seems to sort of shift down the page the more sort of stories go up there, and so. It's, there isn't really one place you can go and find out what everyone's talking about that week. And that's, so that, and that's had an impact on, you know, what's happened within the culture because it's more difficult for bands, I think, to, to get a momentum and to get traction when mm. there's so many different outlets all with different agendas and different tastes. It's, it's kind of a weird... Yeah, yeah, because the NME was kind of band-driven, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, was, it wasn't always supposed to be like that. I think... In the noughties, we kind of got criticised um, probably fairly for not being varied enough in terms of the, the genres that we were covering. We did a fair bit, but uh, yeah. it was essentially we, we sort of doubled down on guitar music because there was so much of it and it was so exciting. That's maybe one of the reasons why guitar music's not so as big as it would some of us had liked it to be now as well. Like, there's just so much going on and everything's all in one place. You know, you could say we 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 overdid it. You know, people got bored of it because there was so much of it about. There was a proper glut of it coming in, and yeah. there's only so much of it people could take, really. So, what's your thoughts on like a revival of guitar music like that? Do you, do you think? I, I know that we can't predict this kind of thing, but you know, it usually comes back around. Do you do you think it'll be anytime soon, or what? Um, I think it will come around. Um, I don't know. It's, it's it's a weird one, isn't it? Because what we're finding with the the new guitar bands that are coming through now is that there's there isn't a huge amount of variety. I think some of them, a lot of them, are great. Um, if you look at bands like um, Idols and Fontaines and um, uh, you know Fat White Family and stuff that's going on in South South London. Mm. Yeah, yeah. In terms of the pure guitar bands, those I think there's some um, there's some great stuff going on there, but it's it's pretty raw and it's pretty sort of punk and it's based in you know, some the, the gritty guitar stuff. There isn't a sort of variety necessarily. Um, and you look at bands that started off guitar and have gone in, into other directions, like um, Tame Impala and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And they're, they're, a lot of bands are kind of shifting away from guitars. They seem, seem to think that they start as guitar bands and then 
they can move off into more um, electronic and um, and psychedelic sort of areas. Yeah, it's all psychedelic now, isn't it? Yeah, it is. There's a lot of psychedelia going on, and I think to a degree, I think we when I think guitar music will come back. You know, it's never really gone away, but um, I think it will probably come back into fashion at some point. But I think it will come back into fashion as some sort of conglomerate of all of that, um, rather than the you know, it's, it's, I think we're going to see bands like Idols and Fontaines having these sort of album chart hits, but I don't think there's enough of a culture behind them to um, create a, a movement like or a scene like we had with Britain nah. or in the noughties necessarily. Certainly not at this point, because there isn't really the apparatus to to push it and to and to make it cohere. Um, mm. But I think you know we will they, they, that will come back around again. But I think it will be part of a. Um, a, a, a broader idea of you know the psychedelia and, and and the punk and stuff like that coming together. Um, mm -hmm. We just need one sort of uh, kickoff band that um, gets everyone excited at once. That's all, that's kind of all you need with those things. I saw Mark you'd, uh, in one of your recent articles. You made a point about the current situation, which I thought was quite interesting. That maybe this could lead to you know a new whole new scene of new music. Well, I mean that was early on in the lockdown when I kind of thought that it would be possible that they'd stop the big gigs but still keep this kind of 50 people capacity uh smaller gigs going which was, uh, right, okay. uh, people want to get out the, the, the hope was that if people would be able to get out and, and they would be forced to go to see smaller bands in smaller venues and maybe see some stuff and, and discover stuff that they wouldn't otherwise have done that was the dream i don't know if that's necessarily going to happen at this point okay, um, but it may it may be. I mean, it, um, we may find that in a year's time or however long it takes, they may well open the pubs and open the the smaller venues again, and um, and not necessarily allow the the mass gatherings. So we may well find that smaller bands, the spotlight may fall on them a little bit more, a little bit more, as people are desperate to get out and see music. Yeah, I might start a new band. <laughs> yeah, do it. It might be it might be your time to shine again. <laughs> Any like funny or good stories from the big names of that era? Obviously, just got to touch on the story on your Wikipedia page about Keith Richards. Oh yeah, I mean, well, how, how often do you get asked about that? <laughs> um, well, every single time I do an interview, yeah, I get asked. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, that was uh, crazy. Um, interview I did on the phone backstage at uh, every year the, the um, Enemy, the, the parent company, would have an awards ceremony. Um, to celebrate the best uh, journalist that year. And, and in a back room there, I did a sort of half an hour interview with Keith Richards where he came out with this thing. Yeah, so just for context, Keith Richards, basically, you asked him, it's quite a funny question to be fair. Yeah, uh, we asked him um, uh, what the weirdest thing he'd ever snorted was. And he said that his, uh, the weirdest thing he'd ever snorted was his dad. And I was just like, what, your, your dad? And he's going, yeah, 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 my dad. And then it kind of slowly dawned on me, he meant that, his dad's ashes was what he was been snorting and that was i mean kind of weird because obviously i just sort of handed it in and forgot about it i thought okay that's just going to be a a little um like couple page sort of comedy thing little thing in the enemy and that's quite fun and forgot about it and then the next thing i knew like a week later i i um i got a call no what was happening it was um i didn't i didn't know what was happening with the story but uh i was i was asked to do a, a radio interview for the BBC uh, about it um, and they sort of turned up at my my door at the morning and they had this uh, radio van so I was literally just getting out of bed straight and pull some clothes on and get straight into this van and put the headphones on and start talking um, 
And the first thing I talk, I'm talking to like Nikki Campbell or something on, on BBC. And he's saying, oh, so this story that's on the front page of the mirror today. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> front page of the mirror? That was the first <laughs> time I'd heard about it. It was like live on the radio. Um, so he's sort of telling me about this. And I'm a little bit shocked at how big it's blown up. And then um, like, then they say, oh, can you hang on and talk to the Today programme? And I didn't, you know, I, at that point, I didn't really know what the Today programme was. I didn't know it was this sort of flagship political sort of highbrow high um, sort of discussion program. And I'm just like, yeah, sure, I'll get on the Today programme, fine. Um, so I'm sort of chatting away on the Today programme. Um, and I'm, you know, with a very serious, I can't remember who it was I was talking to, but a very serious um, um, radio news journalist who's sort of going, you know, isn't it outrageous? You know, he's really giving me a hard time. He's really berating me for it. He's like, isn't it outrageous that uh, Keith Richards did this? And I've sort of, you know, I, I reached breaking point at the end of my tether and sort of go, you know, what... Um, you know, what's outrageous about it? Keith Richards was put on this earth to snort everything he can. You know, it's an honour to be snorted by Keith Richards. I hope, he, I'm st uh, I hope he's still around when I go so he can snort a bit of me. Right, absolute <laughs> silence on the Today programme. I silenced the Today programme entirely. Right, and they just said, thank you. <laughs> so that was quite entertaining. But then, um, you know, the whole Ferrari around it was kind of weird because, um, uh, yeah, it was. I, you know, Keith came out saying, oh, you know, I've... Uh, he was he came out, came out saying he was misquoted um and then sort of later sort of went back on it because yeah it was, there was all sorts of issues with um the state sort of touring in america it's the stones touring in america which uh this thing might have uh, might have damaged so uh you know i just kind of went along with whatever they were going to say and and ultimately he did come around and and uh confirm the veracity of the story so i was kind of pleased about that but yeah <laughs> A bit of a mad story, really. I've still got it. I've still got that on tape. Um, I was going to, um, I did have a chat with the, you know, the band Ash. Um, we were, I was going to give them the quotes and maybe they could write a song around it. We were talking seriously about doing that, but um, I'm not sure I actually own the tape. I think it's owned by the parent company, but there you go. <laughs> still, I've still got it. So that was quite a weird story. But, um, I, yeah, I've had a fairly wild times out there with some, some of the bands. Probably the wildest one, I think, was um, I went to Tijuana with the Kooks, um, <laughs> probably sort of 2006, 2007, something like that. They were uh, making a video for uh, um, She Moves In Her Own Way and sort of galloping up and down on Tijuana Beach with um, horses, I believe. Um, and, you know, apart from the fact that we obviously went absolutely insane in Tijuana on God knows what, um, the weirdest thing about it was... Um, it was obviously quite a dangerous little town and the band were film, filming the last few scenes of this video and the and the, the director said okay don't come with us we're going to go to a very dangerous part of town you just, just get on the bus and go back to the hotel and we'll uh, we'll see you when we get back there and we sort of got so there's me and the photographer and the pr and a couple of sort of other people involved with the band who got on this tour bus to go back to the hotel which um and on the way back to the hotel, the bus trip, what I think must be one of the worst wrong turnings you can possibly take on the planet. And we are like one o'clock in the morning, off our faces, we ended up in the queue to the American border. Um, and this was, once you're in that queue, you can't turn around. And we've got no idea what's on this bus. I mean, you know what I mean? It's the band's bus. Could be anything on there. Um, and they literally tore the bus apart. We were there for about four hours. They came on with guns and they woke the poor PR up with a gun in her face. Um, and literally tore that bus apart, and it was terrifying, the whole thing. Wow. Uh, and they even managed, after four hours, we got let into America off, <laughs> like, dawn, and just turned around and drove straight back to Mexico. 
Um, that was uh, that was a pretty wild one. Um, yeah, stuff like that. I mean, I've missed so many flights going to do interviews with Hardfire. You wouldn't believe, right? <laughs> Things like that. <laughs> I had a great time in Tokyo with uh, Keeper Temple Claws. That was really good fun. We're drinking um, snake. Uh, I love that band. Um, snake scale drinks. We were having and and, and uh, partying all night in various clubs. Is it Gas Panic? I think we went to Gas Panic. That was really good. Um, yeah, and being on the, on the, the last Libertines tour before they broke up was pretty wild as well as I remember. Um, just, uh, yeah, yeah, crazy scenes with um, it was, the, the band literally sort of breaking up and, and collapsing around us and Pete Doherty sort of, like, right, we're in Birmingham and he's saying, oh, yeah, I've just got to go back to London to uh, uh, get some laundry. All right, okay, <laughs> okay, off you go. Right. <laughs> Pete would disappear to... 24 hours and turn up in Manchester. So yeah, stuff like that was quite fun. You kind of touched on it, but how do you rate guitar bands of today compared to not only the noughties, but like all of all your experience of guitar bands? Um, how do I rate them now? I mean, I, um, I still think guitar bands are, are making some great stuff. Um, I'm really interested in in the sort of the psychic and the, and the um, you know the exploratory stuff that you find a lot of bands um, are, are doing now. I'm kind of a bit, little bit less interested when people go fully electronic and, and um, because it ultimately that I think takes a little bit of humanity out of, out of what they're doing and, and they, there's a tendency towards the sort of mainstream pop that, that always kind of creeps in a little bit to that that, I, that I'm not necessarily as excited by as I, as I am still to, to uh, uh, people coming on stage and, and screaming their guts out and thrashing away at guitars every now and then. Which is why you know I'm still I'm still probably going to love Wolf Alice more than um, more than I'm going to love Tame Impala, um, but I do think that there's there's some really interesting noises being made and there's some really exciting stuff. I mean, you look at a band. I mean, I've been really loving the new Heinz record um, recently, um, which is a I think a really fascinating example. This this is a band that over three uh, three albums have gone from being a very scratchy kind of lo-fi DIY sort of sort of band. Um, who just seems to be doing it for larks. And over two albums, then now this new album is, is this sort of psychedelic wonder. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. It's, you know, these incredible noises that you'd expect more out of Flaming Lips or something like that. And, and the fact that bands can do yeah. that, the technology has developed to the point where, you know, ba bands can explore all these sort of incredible landscapes. That's what makes me optimistic about what's going to come when guitar music is sort of comes back into fashion, if you like. And it, it seems to be happening fairly slowly, but I think the opportunity... Mm. Possibilities are, are there and, and and enormous. When a band like Heinz can do it, I think um, it, it's, it's out there for everyone to grab. Let's hope, let's hope so. Actually, I, I hope it does come back around pretty soon. But um, you know, what I, what's been a bit of a bugbear for me, and if people have been reading my columns, they'd know this. But um, and there has been a bit of bug bugbear for me in that um, I've, I've been very annoyed that the, the the aesthetic of the guitar band has been kind of stolen away. In the same way that in the in the Britpop era, the the labels and the and the, the support networks were were bought up essentially. Over the last sort of five or six years, what you see is the the, the basic aesthetics of of a guitar band. You know, this sort of scruffy types will come along, but they're basically they're pop bands. You know, they're boy bands really. Um, Bastille are the ones that I've been particularly hammering on about. You know, sorry Bastille to be the fall guys for for my uh, my concerns about this, but just I if you're I just can't get my head around it's not like I can't get my head around it I, I kind of find it frustrating and annoying that 
you know, this was what was a sort of, you know, the sign of authenticity of a, of a band has now just been commodified and, and monetized and like, okay, an, an indie band now can still sound like a boy band, but it, you, you know, and I just find that really annoying that the, the idea of, of guitar music and indie music has just been sucked into pop music and now and pop music has been completely, has, has completely consumed everything. And, mm. and and we're all supposed to go. Okay, yeah, no, I, everyone likes everything now. And so uh, so you must like pop music because everyone likes pop music. It's just like, do I have to? You know, pop music for me. Um, but yeah, but look, we've got we've got pop music now that looks like it should be for you. Oh yeah, but still don't really like it. You know, it's not all about the trousers. Do, does anyone care about being alternative to anything anymore? Who knows? Mm. Um, we're not supposed to really. We're supposed to like everything. So. I don't know. Is there, is there a culture there for that anymore? Is there necessarily a culture for, for you know, feeling as though you like something that that the mainstream doesn't like? Um, and if so, where where is it? Where can I find it? <laughs> <laughs>